uh, Mr. You're going to have to pronounce your name because I'll mess it up. So, Chair, all right, go right ahead. Thank you, Your Honor, and thanks to the appellants and all similarly situated United employees taking the time to consider our appeal on such an expedited basis. Now, this case presents a straightforward but important legal question, and that is whether a company like United imposes irreparable injury on employees when it mounts a sustained effort to coerce them into violating their religious beliefs or their health needs by putting them, as this court put it in BST, to a choice between their jobs and their jabs, especially whereas here other professional consequences of being placed on indefinite unpaid leave are so severe. Now, this legal question is important because if what United is doing does not impose irreparable injury, a company can likely escape all accountability for having violated its employees' rights, and that's because if an employee succumbs to the pressure and violates her beliefs, as one of our clients did during the course of this case, the company will later argue, as the government did in the Together Employees case that United cites, the company will later argue that the employee did not suffer damages because she made the decision herself. Shirley, we need to start the clock. Go ahead. Thank you. Giving you some extra time, but that's all right. Thank you, Your Honor. We'll take all the time you need today. Could you help us with what the scope of this right to an injunctive relief pending the outcome of the litigation? This is not a permanent injunction. It's a preliminary injunction. That's correct. When this would apply in an employment case, is it in any employment case that where reasonable accommodation is sought, if you can show that failure to be accommodated would violate your rights, your conscience, your faith, or is it in a particular category, a subset of religious accommodation cases? It's the latter, Your Honor. And what is that particular subset? And we would say that this is a relatively easy case because there was such clear coercion here, but we would say that in cases where there is a sustained effort to coerce employees into violating their religious beliefs. So could Ms. Davis, who's in the Supreme Court in the Fort Bend case, if she wanted to go to a prayer meeting every Sunday, could she get an injunction to go to her prayer meeting every Sunday? No, I don't think so, Your Honor. I mean, if the employer simply fires the employees in response to a request for accommodation, I wouldn't consider that a sustained effort. Right, but they haven't been fired yet. They're just asking for it while they're still working there. Could they say, well, I intend to go every week? I'm trying to distinguish that from the TWA case, and that case has collective bargaining and other issues, too. When does it apply in an employment religious accommodation? If you want to wear your religious garb, you believe it's part of your faith, can you get an injunction for that pending the outcome of the lawsuit? Well, I think it really depends on how the employer handles the situation. If the employer makes a sustained effort to coerce a violation of religious beliefs, then I think you can get a preliminary injunction to prevent them from trying to force you to violate your religious beliefs. Now, that may leave the employer with a choice of, am I going to fire this person or not? Because once the person has been fired, there's no more coercion. The coercion is complete. If you can get an – if any time there's a religious accommodation issue that's ongoing, you could get an injunction, then why aren't there many more cases with injunctions in the Title VII context? Well, a number of reasons, Your Honor. First of all, in the garden variety case, the employer typically has a pretty good argument for undue hardship. And so it's difficult for the employee to establish a likelihood of success on the merits because the employer has got a good argument for undue hardship. In this case, United 
does not have a good argument for undue hardship because, and this is one of the coercive, one of the important facts in the case, during the course of the litigation, the appellants here offered to United, they said, look, we'll take away your concern about, any concern you might have about safety, we'll take that away. We will ourselves pay to be tested even every day if you want us to. And, you know, if we're tested every day, there's no way we can be a greater threat to other employees or to passengers, right, than if we were simply vaccinated. So Judge Elrod asked a good question because obviously we have to be careful should we decide that injunctive relief here would be possibly appropriate. How far does it go and how would it be read? Let me give another hypothetical. Let's say that there's an employee in a company who is the victim of continuing highly obnoxious racial epithets. Or let's say that there's an employee who's disabled and he or she receives constant daily criticism, make fun of the handicap, and it's pretty obvious that that's happened. Sue under Title VII or the ADA. Terrible, terrible harm being inflicted on a daily, ongoing basis. Injunction? No, Your Honor. I think that case would fall well outside of the rule we're arguing for here. Well, why? What's the legal distinction? I don't see it. One word, Your Honor. Coercion. In your hypothetical, there's no attempt to coerce anybody to do anything. But what we have here is clear, sustained coercion by United. In fact, there are three facts that, to me, highlight the coercive character of United's policy. I've already mentioned the offer we made during the litigation to take the safety issue completely off the table by, you know, through daily testing at our client's expense. The record also... So what case law tells us that coercion is the test? I think BST is the best authority we have. Well, but that was a governmental employee. You know that that doesn't apply. That gets you nowhere. Well, I think it does, Your Honor. I think for reasons Judge Ho explained in his opinion when we sought an injunction pending appeal, BST, as a matter of logic and law, really does apply in this situation, and I'm happy to explore that at greater length. But as to the coercion point, the second key fact, in my view, is that the record shows, as United has often touted, that the risk of catching COVID on its airplanes is infinitesimally low, with or without a vaccine, and some 99% of United's employees are already vaccinated. And finally, there's evidence that was credited by Judge Pittman below showing that United's CEO deliberately set out to coerce employees with religious scruples against the vaccine into violating those beliefs. And when you put all those facts together, it could not have been for purposes of safety, and in fact, Judge Pittman indicated he thought that was pretextual. The only possible explanation is, you know, marketing or virtue signaling or currying political favor or something, you know, something else. And it's that complex of facts that, among other things, we think makes this case pretty unique. And this case in BST, we think, fall into quite a narrow category of cases where a preliminary injunction would be available in this circumstance. Now, are you asking the court to order the district court to impose a preliminary injunction? No, Your Honor. Or are you asking to be remanded for the other factors to be considered? The latter. We're simply asking the court to reverse the district court's finding that there was no irreparable injury here, or at least that we hadn't established it. And remand for the finding on the merit. That's correct, Your Honor. Right. And to do that, we would have to declare that there was or is irreparable injury. I'm sorry? In order to do that, we would have to declare that there is irreparable injury. Well, I think that would be an easy conclusion on this record, but if the court prefers, the court could say, no, the BST decision applies in the Title VII context, and so, you know, district court, go ahead and apply the BST decision here. That would be another possible outcome. Are you opposed to the BST outcome 
in a case with a, you said it wouldn't apply in a garden variety, I guess in the Sabbath example or the hijab example, if the employer every day is sending them home and they can't bid on the next job because they're wearing a hijab, are you saying that that case would or would not be in the side of irreparable injury, that each day deciding whether or not to wear your religious garb that's very important to your faith? Well, I think, you know, in that very unusual case, it might well fall within the rule, especially if there's evidence that the employer is trying to coerce the choice. But if you look at these kinds of cases in the Title VII context, Abercrombie being one good example, that was a one-time transaction with the woman who applied for a job at Abercrombie, was wearing a hijab, and they said, no, we're not, you know, we're not going to give you the job. There was no ongoing attempt. But I'm saying an ongoing, you show up every day and you say, sorry, you can't be a flight attendant today, go home, and they did that every day, could they, would they fall on this side of the line? I'm trying to figure out where the line is. That may well, that probably would fall on this side of the line. But again, these cases are very rare. There's another unique feature of this case, and that is that it involves a vaccine. And a vaccine is, in a sense, an irreversible choice. So if it was, you had to get some kind of device that could be read, you know, we're very futuristic here, some sort of thing implanted so that it could be read by a reader instead of a card reader, an implant reader, would that fall on this side of the line? If it, you know, you say every employee has to get something implanted so it can be read in this space, you know, kind of job, then that would be on this side of the line, right? Well, if there's an ongoing effort to coerce the employee into doing that, as opposed to simply saying, you know, you either have to get this device or you're going to be fired tomorrow. Does the ADA, are you emphasizing your ADA plaintiffs? I don't read a lot about that in the briefing. Well, all of the plaintiffs that are before the court right now have religious, have Title VII religious accommodation claims, and a couple of them only have ADA claims. And so we, you know, we do think the principle of BST applies in the ADA context as well, but it wouldn't be essential for the court to reach that here. And it doesn't matter whether or not particular plaintiffs have been accommodated along the way as the case has progressed, because there at least, there's at least one who hasn't. Is that correct? Yes, there are a couple of appellants who have been temporarily accommodated, but this court's case law is quite clear. And in fact, I apologize that we didn't cite the leading case in our reply brief. The leading case that we've been able to find is called Doe versus Duncanville Independent School District. It was an opinion by Judge Smith several years ago, and it makes clear that, you know, that this kind of, what's the buzzword? This kind of voluntary cessation of illegal activity does not eliminate irreparable injury. That was the prayer at the basketball game. That's right. It was the school, the mandatory school prayer case. That's exactly right. So as you know, we can, in this circuit, we can affirm on any ground that appears in the record. So we could affirm the denial of injunction on any of the other prongs. Let's talk about the likelihood of success on the merits, setting aside for the moment the question of exhaustion. I don't think you've exhausted, and I think that's fatal to you, but assuming that exhaustion isn't a problem. So you have three plaintiffs who have been given accommodations, and the other two are cockpit personnel for whom... Only one's a cockpit personnel. Only one? The other person is a flight attendant. Flight attendant, all right. Thank you for the correction. You're right about that. And so there are special considerations for them. We don't have to decide the merits, but all we have to decide is that you haven't shown a substantial likelihood of success on the merits. Maybe ultimately you would prevail, but now I don't see how there's a likelihood, particularly as to the three who've been accommodated. 
Well, Judge Pittman thought, and I, and I, and I believe this is a quote from his opinion, that, that plaintiff's claims appear strong and compelling, I think, was the, was the language that he used. And, and he yeah, he, 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 he threw in some cheap shots. There's no, there's no doubt about it. It had nothing to do, he said he was dwelling only on the irreparable harm, and then he managed to try to poison the well as best, as best he could. He, he certainly did that. Well, I, I, I think he wanted to convey to the world that he thought our claims had merit. And, and, uh, um, but I think the, um, did, did I answer your question, Judge Smith? Well, I, I, on, in, in terms of the accommodations, and particularly for the, for the, for the three um, uh, who aren't the in-flight personnel, I just, I, I just don't see how you, you've shown us that there's likelihood of success. There, there, there may be a slim chance that they would succeed ultimately, but that's not what we're looking at on, on an injunction. Well, it's, it's important to understand that, that, those, that those three people who have been temporarily accommodated um, are still subject to United's policy uh, that, if you, that if you want a religious or a medical ex exemption, uh, what you were entitled to, if they approve it, is indefinite unpaid leave. Um, that is the policy. It was. It was. It's clear in the record. It was articulated at the very beginning uh, of this whole process. And and yes, it's true that in response to our preliminary injunction motion, in fact, the day before the preliminary injunction hearing, United decided uh, to offer some temporary accommodations uh, to to those three. I think it was all three of them were you know were were granted uh, right before the preliminary injunction hearing, but. Um, but one of them is expressly limited to 59 days, and the, and the other two have been told repeatedly, look, you know, we may change our mind at any time, and you may be, you may be back to our, you know, to our main policy. So it, it may be that their irreparable, irreparable injury is not as imminent as it is for the, uh, for the pilot and the, and the flight attendant. Um, it may not be as imminent, but, it, but it's still very likely because, you know, because United has said we can, change our, we can change our mind at any time, and they only acted in response to our preliminary injunction motion. Now, on the question of irreparable harm, why isn't, uh, why isn't White versus Carlucci uh, 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 a strong enough circuit precedent for us to, uh, uh, to, uh, to affirm? That, that case has been cited, as you know, over 200 times since it was since it was uh, since it was issued, and there's some pretty strong language in there about uh, what 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 is not irreparable harm. Yes, and I, as I recall, White it, it it holds very clearly that irreparable injury has to be separately established. Yes, um, and and the court implicitly rejected the view of the Ninth Circuit that there's a sliding scale when it comes to assessing irreparable injury that you can you know you can you can grant a, P, a PI on a lower showing of injury if the likelihood of success is higher. And, 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 and that's all true. We don't take any issue at all with that. In fact, we embrace it uh, because we, we very uh, diligently um, established uh, irreparable injury. In well, the well here, 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 here's, here's the key, key passage, it seems to me, uh, and I'm quoting it. Of course, of course, I wrote it, as you know, but, uh, 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 but I'll, I'll read it. Just one sentence. The burden of proof is not reduced by either the existence of an extremely strong likelihood of success or the egregiousness of the alleged wrong upon which the underlying claim is based. That, 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 that's a preliminary injunction case. Yeah, and we, we have no quarrel with that. Um, but, and, and let, me, let me just maybe go into a little more depth about the nature of our, of our irreparable injury, and that may help to answer, uh, answer Your Honor's question. Um, you know, as, as Judge Ho's, ex, Ho's opinion explains, uh, the principle in BST is that forcing people to choose between their faith and their livelihoods uh, creates what he called a crisis of conscience that ipso facto causes irreparable injury. Um, and indeed, I would say that the kind of coercion that we've seen here is, is even more significant than the subtle coercion that was sufficient to establish irreparable injury in the uh, in the Duncanville School District case, Your Honor. I, that was that wasn't a sustained effort to coerce anybody. Um, but that it, was also a government employee, uh, employee. Yeah, it, it it was certainly a government employee. That's right. But as 
Um, you know, for, but for all, the, for all the Texas appellants who are before the court, this case presents the same kind of crisis of conscience as was present in BSP. Uh, a concern common to all of them is that, as the unrebutted expert testimony showed below, all three of the available vaccines uh, were either designed or tested uh, using stem cell lines from aborted fetuses. And given these appellants' religious views about abortion and complicity in evil, they believed that vaccination would make them complicit in the destruction of innocent human life. Now, not everybody who, who shares their view about abortion accepts that, that view of complicity, but that is their view, and it's sincere, and Judge Pittman found that it was sincere. And, as Judge Pittman noted, it's a choice that cannot be undone once you've made it. And so that, it's a, it presents a serious religious concern that United now pits through its policy, it pits that against their desire to provide for their families. And so as Judge Ho put it, to hypothesize that the earthly reward of monetary damages could compensate for these profound challenges of faith is to misunderstand the entirety of religious conviction. So is, your, is, is it your position then that, that we would have to presume irreparable uh, injury any time a plaintiff alleges a denial of religious accommodation? No. No. Again, I, what's, what's key here is a sustained effort at coercion, uh, backed by evidence, um, as, as we have done it here. And to come back to your, your earlier question about, um, about government versus, uh, versus private entity, as the, as the defendant, Judge Ho, also addressed that, he said, to the person of faith who is forced to confront this challenge of conscience, what matters is not who imposed the mandate, but that the mandate conflicts with religious conviction. Well, don't you think it matters, though, whether a, 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 a plaintiff is suing under for statutory grounds under Title VII or ADA as opposed to raising a constitutional claim against a governmental entity under the First Amendment or some other provision? Not not for purposes of irreparable injury, Your Honor. I mean, it, it certainly does matter in some respects in the case, but, but not for purposes of irreparable injury. The, the, the injury, in practical terms, the injury to our clients is identical to the injury that they would sustain if, it, if, if they worked for a governmental employer, and the governmental employer were doing the same thing that, that United has done. From their standpoint, the distinction between a statutory right and a constitutional right is purely metaphysical. Um, All right, so let's, uh, while we've got time, let's talk about let's let's talk about exhaustion. Okay, you haven't exhausted. Uh, our our clients have exhausted, Your Honor. Your Honor, they have done everything uh, that they need to do in order to get a decision from the uh, from the EOC. They have filed their claims with the EOC. But, yeah, but the step but the statute says they can't sue until they've until they've received that 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 letter. Well, there's a <clears throat> there's there's a large body of case law, including the Drew case from, from this court, that says that, uh, that they can seek a preliminary injunction uh, to maintain the status quo while the EEOC is doing its processing. But, but, but by the time the, uh, this circuit decided the Drew case, um, uh, exhaustion, exhaustion was complete. I don't see how you get any, any benefit from the, from the Drew case. That, that, that was a fully exhausted case and this one is not. Well, may, maybe by the time it came to the court, it was fully exhausted, uh, but as, as I recall, the Drew case involved uh, whether, somebody, whether somebody could seek attorney's fees uh, or uh, that sort of thing based on, uh, based on failure to exhaust, and the court said, wait a minute, uh, they, they legitimately filed this lawsuit um, even before the EEOC had acted on their claims. Um, and, and, and so it was, a, it was a legitimate lawsuit, and they legitimately sought uh, a preliminary injunction. Uh, so we, you know, we, we think Drew is, is controlling uh, on, on the exhaustion question here. And, and again, I, the, you know, our clients have done everything they possibly can. They're trying to get the EEOC to move as quickly as possible. And all we're seeking is, is what the plaintiff in Drew sought, which is, uh, which is an order maintaining the status quo until the EEOC finish its, finishes its process. Can I ask one quick question? Oh, absolutely. Um, Kimberly Hamilton uh, says that she didn't get the um, 
medical medical insurance that she needs for her husband is that a basis of the reparable harm that if that the medical insurance has been cut off uh, and is is that is that in the record in a robust manner it it it, it is in the record and we and we devoted a, a good portion of both of our briefs to to that issue um you know, I think that that's an argument the court might well reach if you if you conclude that BST does not apply, and if you disagree with Judge Ho about that. Um, well, I'm, that's what I'm asking is, yes. I'm not, and I'm not foreshadowing right. either of those two things you just said, but is the fact that you don't have medical care for the cancer treatment that's being cut off right then, is that in the record in a robust way, and would that be the irreparable harm? the lack of ability to get ongoing cancer care and you might die in the meantime or something such as, I mean, I don't, I'm not trying to be not um, sympathetic or appropriate about yes, that. Yes, no, and, 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 and that, certainly, that certainly would be an alternative basis for, uh, for a preliminary injunction or for a finding of irreparable injury as to, um, as to that particular plaintiff. That's correct, Your Honor. Okay. okay. No one else has questions. You've saved time for about, thank you. Thank you, Your Honor. May it please the court. The preliminary injunction, the denial of the preliminary injunction should be affirmed for three independent reasons. First, plaintiffs' irreparable injury theories are legally untenable. Second, even if they were legally untenable. Second, even if they were right about the law, the factual record provides no support for those legal theories in this case. And third, in all events, they fail to exhaust their administrative remedies. Let me start with the legal point, and I think the starting point for the law here is this court's decision in White versus Carlucci, as Judge Smith emphasized. The passage that Judge Smith emphasized is exactly the right one to focus on, and I would appoint this court also to the immediately preceding sentence, where this court emphasized that uh, the irreparable injury has to be proven separately and convincingly, and this is the key part, regardless of the, quote, nature of the claim. Well, that's exactly what they're, the error they're making here. What they are arguing is that there's a subset of Title VII claims where they don't have to show irreparable injury, it just per se exists. And that set of claims is religious accommodation claims. I'm not sure I understand that. It strikes me that they're making a slightly more subtle argument um, which I took, I take you to refute, but the argument is, it's not that they don't have to show irreparable injury, it's that the injuries that they're suffering are two. They're suffering one injury from being put on unpaid leave indefinitely, and they're suffering a second injury because they're putting to the crisis, the put, put to the crisis of, of conscience in choosing their fate. And so it's not that they don't have to prove it, it's just that one is the Title VII injury, that's the unpaid leave thing, and the other is the irreparable one, namely, don't involve me in this coercive choice about whether to get a shot or not. But the problem, Judge Oldham, is that that second choice theory is present in every single Title VII religious accommodation claim. Every single time an employer tells an employee, I'm not gonna accommodate your religious practice, and if you don't comply with our neutral rules, you're gonna face adverse employment consequences. Is, it, is that true that that's in every case? Their point is that once you've had it, 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 it can't be erased. This is not like a series of individual choices. You know, today I'm going to obey the Sabbath. Next week I may not. You know, it's a, it's a one and done thing. It's, it, it's either on or off. Well, so three points about that, Your Honor, which I don't think that's correct. Okay. First, at the time of the initial choice, that's not true. So take a Sabbath case. When the employer tells the employee, you either have to show up to work tomorrow or there's going to be adverse employment consequences. Right then and there, they face the same exact choice. And they could run into court and ask for a TRO or a PI, and they'd be making exactly the argument that they're making. Would that be the same case if it were a tattoo or an item implanted in their skin? Or do you see those as distinct? I don't think this court can draw a distinction on those grounds precisely because of the nature of religious belief. When you're an employee, it's no answer to you to say, well, don't worry if you break the Sabbath tomorrow, because you can always comply with the Sabbath the next week. If you think your eternal soul is going to be endangered by violating the Sabbath tomorrow. So there's no doctrinal distinction between a 
tax, something that you can't remove a permanent tax. No, because from the perspective of the religious employee, it's the choice right then and there for that day that imposes the choice that they're so worried about. So that's the first problem. So you think that that can continue? So you could say you must accept this implant or else you're being put on leave? Yeah. So there are no preliminary injunctive relief available in a suit brought by an employer. What if you were to say, if you maintain your, it doesn't matter what, your Muslim, Islamic or Christian views, you are going to be put on unpaid leave? You're just, and we'll watch this, just, you know, we hired you, but if you continue to be a practicing person of Islam or Christianity, you're going to be on leave. And so does that have to last for years and years and years while that litigates through? Well, on that particular hypothetical, I don't think the litigation would take very long since that would be a rank express discrimination on the basis of religion. So it'd be a pretty fast suit and it might well be the sort. I mean, some suits. It might well be the. What's fast? Nine months, a year? Well, and the other related thing is on a hypothetical like that, I bet the EEOC would come pretty quickly to the rescue because the EEOC can actually bring suits. So that's the distinction, whether or not the EEOC is favorable to the case? No, I'll say a couple of things, Your Honor. So first, in terms of the irreparable injury, I don't think there is a difference. You couldn't sue. You could sue. I mean, but you could not get an injunction even if you're put on leave for the prima facie reason that you are of a particular faith group. You could not establish irreparable injury in that case. That's why they haven't cited a single case in the history of Title VII that has ever granted a preliminary injunction to a Title VII religion. Is there something that's preventing that? Yeah, 50 years of precedent recognizing that that's not irreparable injury. You know, what case presents finding an irreparable injury? I understand that there are a whole series of cases where there are not irreparable injuries. But if you were to believe this theory, the theory that, you know, this irreparable, I mean, the coercion theory, then is there anything that would block this court from, even if it were unique in doing so, saying that it should be remanded to reconsider that? Well, so I would say two things, Your Honor. Three things, maybe. The first is I do think White does actually foreclose it because White says you have to show irreparable injury regardless of the nature of the claim. And what they're essentially arguing in the hypothetical you just posed is that there's a subset of Title VII claims where just by its nature, they per se have irreparable injury. So I don't think it's consistent with that. I also don't think it's consistent with the whole body of case law that says that the fact that Title VII provides comprehensive remedies on the back end means that you don't have irreparable injury. Because again, no one is actually being coerced into violating their religious beliefs. Every one of these employees can take the unpaid leave and then litigate the case. And if they're right on the merits, as they undoubtedly would be on the hypothetical you provided, they'll get back pay and all the rest. No one actually needs to violate their religious beliefs. And that's underscored by the facts. That they can wait it out for a year. Right. Just like every other Title VII plaintiff. But most people can't wait it out for a year. That's true, Your Honor. But that may be true, Your Honor. But that's also true for every Title VII plaintiff ever. That's what I'm asking, is if there could be an injunctive relief and accommodation place. What prevents that? So what I was, the second point I was making, Your Honor, was that the mere fact that they might not have enough financial circumstances to wait it out is not a distinguishing factor from every Title VII case ever, including, for example, this court's decision in the Morgan v. Fletcher case, where the woman was responsible for 45% of her family's income and her house was probably going to get foreclosed. And she certainly couldn't wait it out. But maybe there should be a distinction for accommodation cases, where it's not an after the person's been fired, but it's a prospective accommodation cases. With all respect, Your Honor, I would think it would turn Title VII on its head if the only people who get preliminary injunctions are not racial minorities who are subject to actual discrimination, but instead religious plaintiffs who are seeking preferential treatment. Because remember, look— Are you saying the religious rights under Title VII are somehow second class to the discrimination against race and sex and national origin? Exactly the opposite, Your Honor. 
as we were just discussing, Title VII race and sex plaintiffs don't get these preliminary injunctions, even on stark facts, even when they're going to have their house foreclosed. Disability ones could, disability plaintiffs under ADA. They haven't cited a single case of that either, Your Honor. The but they could get accommodations, injunctive relief and accommodations. They can't, not preliminary injunctions, Your Honor. In, like the Morgan case, my, the point I was trying to make is that in race cases and sex cases, it is the general rule, and they've cited zero cases going the other way, granting preliminary injunctions. So if you try to create some exception for religious accommodation claims, you're treating religious accommodation claims better than race cases and sex cases. And I think everyone would have to agree that race cases are at least the heart of Title VII. That would be very strange. And it's not just race versus religion. It's racial discrimination cases versus this, which is not a religious discrimination case. It's a religious claim for preferential treatment. I don't, the district court seemed to believe that your client's CEO actually was showing hostility to religion in his statements and his approach to this. Well, Your Honor, a couple of things. First of all, it's clearly not a discrimination case because we have a neutral policy, and what they are asking for is to be treated better than everyone else who isn't vaccinated because of their religious beliefs. Well, is it a neutral policy? Aren't there a lot of employees who don't, I think Judge Oldham has a question, but this is my last question. Aren't there a lot of employees in other places that don't have to be vaccinated that are employees of American? I'm sorry. Of United? No, the only employee, this policy applies to all U.S. Right, but people who are, but you use flight attendants from other countries and other people that don't have to be vaccinated. So with respect to foreign employees, it's because there are separate foreign laws that we have to comply with. That doesn't make it a non-neutral policy, just a recognition that we have to comply with other countries' laws. But it shows it's not an undue hardship to be working with people who are not vaccinated, doesn't it? No, it shows that foreign law requires us to bear certain costs that we can't avoid because we can't violate foreign law, but it still imposes. Well, but if you kind of, you have a work pool that has some people who are and some people who aren't, the obligation that you're actually accomplishing anything, the argument goes down, doesn't it? I don't think so, Your Honor. But if I can make two more points about their coercion theory, because I do think it's pretty important, I think that they've largely tied their entire case to that. So the first is, think about what the effect of their rule is. The effect of their rule is that they can get a preliminary injunction if we give them unpaid leave, but they can't get a preliminary injunction if we fire them. If I stood here right now and told you that United had made the decision to just terminate their clients, on his own theory, he wouldn't be entitled to a preliminary injunction. That would be a perverse rule of law for this court to adopt. It would be incentivizing employers to fire religious accommodation plaintiffs rather than give them unpaid leave, which is a significantly valuable benefit. Unpaid leave is often what employees seek as an accommodation in cases like Sabbath cases. It means they get to preserve their job. It means that when they can come back to work, their job is preserved. What they're asking you to do is adopt a rule that's going to incentivize employers not to provide that. That would turn the statute on its head. Mr. Lupien, what is the adverse employment action in this case? It's an element of their prima facie case, I take it. What is the adverse employment action? I'm not sure that we need to show a quote-unquote adverse employment action, but what they are complaining about is they're saying that being placed on unpaid leave is an inadequate and unreasonable accommodation. So our precedent says that as part of their prima facie requirement to make the initial showing under McDonnell Douglas, they have to come forward with at least an adverse employment action and then all the other stuff, protected class and policy that's conflicting with the religious faith, et cetera. So they have alleged it in paragraph 127 of their complaint that the adverse employment action is being placed on unpaid leave. Do you disagree with that? I do not disagree that they are saying that unpaid leave is an inadequate accommodation. And on the- I'm talking about a slightly different concept. Before we get to accommodations and everything else, I'm just talking about their prima facie case. They say the adverse employment action is being placed on unpaid leave indefinitely. Is that consistent with your understanding of the complaint? I mean, it's certainly in the complaint. It's paragraph 127, but I don't take you to dispute it. I just want to be 
precise, Your Honor. I, it's not, I'm not aware, in an unreasonable accommodation case, I'm not sure that adverse employment action element is there. It's there in other parts of the statute, like, for example, retaliation claims and intentional discrimination claims. I'm not sure that that element is part of the elements of an unreasonable accommodation claim. And that's why I'm, I'm a little reluctant to take a position one way or the other about whether that element in the abstract is met. We're not disputing that they can come in and argue on the merits that unpaid leave is unreasonable as an accommodation. We think they're wrong about that on the merits, though that question's not presented here. But the key point is that they have been given an accommodation of unpaid leave. They might not like it. They might not think it's good enough. But they have been given an accommodation, and that's why I was making the point to Judge Elrod that it would be sort of astonishing for this court to say that because United did that, rather than just firing them, that's why they have ... Well, I suppose you would agree with me, at least on this, that if we want to talk about 50 years of Title VII precedent, we have that much, saying that placing somebody on unpaid indefinite, indefinite unpaid leave is an adverse employment action no different than failure to hire, failure to promote, changing of work conditions in a substantial way, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right, but this is exactly why I was trying to be careful about that. Unpaid leave is a paradigmatic accommodation in cases like Savage, for instance, right? But that's because the person is asking for it. So you cited to us the case, the ADA case, where the ... No, even if they're not asking for it. Let's say they say, I want to go to the Savage, and I want you to pay me. And the employer says, no, I'm not going to pay you. You can take the day off, but you're not going to get paid. Yeah. The employer's going to win that case every day. So isn't the answer to Judge Elrod's question about why, you know, as to why these cases, you don't see more of them, is that in the quintessential Title VII case, we see a lot of them, and this is the first case I've seen that's like, that has this sort of conscience angle to it. The adverse employment action has already been taken, right? The adverse, you've already been placed on indefinite unpaid leave, you've already been demoted or fired or failed to hire, whatever it is. And so it's the weird case where the employer said, instead of taking the adverse employment action, because again, it's part of the prima facie case. If you don't have it, normally you don't even get to us, right? You just, the EEOC doesn't, you know, kicks it out. We might give you a right to sue letter, but it's poured out and doesn't even get to the Fifth Circuit without some kind of adverse employment action. So this was the first point I would make to Judge Elrod. The only reason that's true is because people don't come running in to ask for a PI or a TRO when they first ask for the accommodation, they don't get it. If this court were to adopt the rule that being faced with a coercive choice is irreparable injury, then every single time someone asks for an exemption from a savage, every single time someone asks for an exemption from a headdress rule, every single time anyone asks for any accommodation and their employer says no, before they violate the rule, they'll just run into court and ask for a PI. That's never happened for 50 years. If I'm understanding you correctly, the result should be exactly the same if the employer says, you're fired, or the employer says, I'll give you five weeks to think about it and then you're fired. Those are exactly the same? Yes, and here's why, Your Honor. Here's why that makes a lot of sense. It's tied to the point I was making to Judge Elrod. A choice is not injury. Can we just pause on that? I realize there's a lot of moving parts, but let's just pause on that last sentence. A choice is not an injury. So let me give you two different cases. Case number one, United announces effective immediately all of our 100,000 employees, or I'm sorry, I should put it differently, any of our 100,000 employees who are in same-sex relationships are fired, effective immediately. So that's case one. Case two, United announces effective five weeks from today, anyone who is still in a same-sex relationship will be fired. Now, case two, the reason, and the CEO goes onto a Zoom town hall and says, the reason we're going to do it differently is we want you to have five weeks of dinner at home to talk with your loved one about how much you value your job and how much you value your relationship. And we want to put you to the choice, and you get five weeks of dinners to sit and debate that with your loved one about whether to stay employed or whether to terminate your same-sex relationship. Now, how can you say that the choice is not a totally independent injury from losing the job? You're saying you have five weeks to debate this with your loved one at home at dinner. It strikes me, whatever the answers are about whether the PIs are available and what precedents say when the actions are actually taken, I would think we'd have to at least agree that they're different injuries. I don't think so, Your Honor, but let me give you one legal answer, and then maybe that would be a good time to turn to the facts of this case and why this case bears no resemblance to that. So as a legal matter, the reason why I don't think it's right is because no matter what, with that five weeks, the employees are better off. The employees are better off because at least they have some choice in the matter about whether they're going to keep their job or not, whereas if they get fired, they've lost their job. But you're forcing the employee, using the leverage of the job, 
you're forcing the employee to choose between two things that are incredibly valuable to them. One is the love of their partner, and the other is, is their job. With all respect, Your Honor, Title VII is an employment statute. And so the injury of losing your job is the injury the statute cares about. And as between just saying you're fired and giving you a choice not to be fired, it seems pretty clear to me that the injury is less when you actually have a choice, which is why, I, if I, again, if I told you right now that United was going to fire their clients, it, I don't think they would stand up and say, hallelujah, my injury's been redressed. I think they would say, that's horrible and that's terrible. And I'm just getting at a slightly more subtle point, I think, which is that it, all they need to show, consistent with Judge Smith's opinion, White, is that the injuries are different, right? That one, one injury comes from the employment action, namely, as you point out, it's an employment statute, back pay, seniority, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the other is an equitable injury that can be redressed because a court can intervene and take away the choice of conscience. I'll give you another example. I realize for, that this is different than employment, but it really highlights, I think, the distinction between doing it yourself and enforcing someone else to participate in it with you. If you drive by my house and you shoot my beagle, right, that's illegal and outrageous and I will make you pay for it, obviously. But if instead you drive by my house and you kidnap my beagle and then holding my beagle ransom, you say to me, well, I'm either going to kill the beagle or I'm gonna force you to resign from your job, you've now put me to a choice, right? You've enlisted me using the power you have over me by the capture of the beagle. You've enlisted me in a choice that of choosing between two things I love very much. And those are just different injuries. And so I would think a court, without having to deal with the first one, right, having the past tense of an adverse employment action already been taken, when you come and you say, well, we might take this, or we will take this adverse employment action if you don't do what we want, it's, they're just different. And I, I don't see why a court can't use the equitable power of an injunction to stop it. So I'll make one last point on the law, and then I would like to try yeah, to yeah. The one point I'll make on the law is the hypothetical you're giving is the same as every single quid pro quo sexual harassment suit that's ever been filed, right? So every single time an employer says, if you don't do X, Y, or Z, and sexually, I, some adverse consequence will happen to you, you can make that exact choice argument. They have zero cases in 50 years getting a preliminary injunction in those cases. I don't think it's because the Title VII plaintiff's bar isn't aggressive or creative. I think it's because the Title VII plaintiff's bar recognizes that under this court's law, including Judge Smith's decision in White, that is just not irreparable injury. Have you seen a case where there's, where, just on the law point, have you seen a case where someone brings the quid pro quo before it being completed? You, you see what I'm getting at? I, so I see exactly what you're getting at, and I'm no, I'm not aware of one, but again, they haven't cited a case where they can, and on the theory your honor is adopting, it's sort of an inexplicable failure of every Title VII plaintiff's lawyer ever to not just counsel their client, but just run into court and ask for a PI. Why not? It's, it just never happened, and it's because courts recognize that the choice itself isn't an injury, and the consequence of the choice is redressable on the back end. If I could now switch to the facts, and I think it's important, I think he basically acknowledged that it's this, it's this coercion that's the whole problem. Well, where's the coercion on the facts of this case? There are five plaintiffs. Three of those plaintiffs have not been placed on unpaid leave at all, period. They don't dispute that. Their only argument is that it's not permanent. Of course it's not permanent. We can't write a policy fixed in stone when we're dealing with an ongoing pandemic. But they don't have any evidence. Well, he's also, it hurts their seniority. Hmm? It hurts their seniority while they're on the unpaid, the, 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 the other jobs, too. Because they can't bid on the better jobs that... But, but, that's in addition to the... So that's in addition. Let me, I'll address that right now, and I would like to finish the point about the coercion. Sorry, uh, so on that, or actually, I, if, you, if Your Honor wouldn't mind, I'll circle back on that. On, on the coercion, it's, it's true it's not permanent, but there is no evidence to suggest that it's going to end anytime soon. They can't show it's actual or imminent injury. So those three, I think, just clearly cannot show irreparable injury, even on their own legal theory of the case. So that leaves two, Sembrano and Buchanan. And I think what's important to focus on is those plaintiffs do not allege ever that they feel the sort of coercion that we've been talking about this morning and that Mr. Scher talked about. Not once in their complaint, in their affidavits, in their testimony, anywhere did they ever say that they're feeling pressured to take the vaccine, that they may take the vaccine, that they are failing a crisis of conscience, that they're wrestling with self-doubt, none of it. All of that is lawyer argument. They have extraordinarily experienced counsel. 
They had these people testify in open court. If they thought any of those things, they would have said it. Instead, what did they say? Kim Tannion testified she will never take the vaccine, no matter the cost. She is not wrestling with some crisis of conscience. She is acting exactly how you would think people who have steadfast religious convictions would act. Zambrano says he's making a difficult choice regarding his children's college. I'm sorry, that's different. That's exactly right, Your Honor. He's not saying, I'm so worried about paying for my kids' college tuition that I might actually violate my religious beliefs. Difficult choice. Again, Your Honor, it's their burden. It's their burden to introduce. They could have asked him the question, are you thinking about violating your religion? They didn't ask the question because they know what the answer is. He is not going to violate his religion just to save his kids from having to get a college loan, like most people in this country do. There is just no evidence at all that any of these plaintiffs feels any coercion. The stress they feel is the stress anyone would feel when they lose their pay for a temporary period. But that is not coercive. That's just every single Title VII plaintiff ever. So I think that even if you accept their legal theory, their coercion argument just falls completely flat on the facts of this case. They could have tried to show that their plaintiffs feel some pressure, but they did not because they cannot. What about the one who only has, is it Jonas? I don't know which one. Who only has a certain amount of days for the temporary position or whatever. Yeah, so Jonas, it is true that because of the CBA, we couldn't get the first accommodation that we gave her lapses after 59 days. As the record reflects and we cite in our brief, she will be provided another accommodation. And by the way, that's only if and when she can return to work. She's been out since mid-October because of a COVID reinfection, notwithstanding her natural immunity from COVID. If I could turn to Gerard, your questions about the seniority, because I think that is an important part of the case. We didn't really talk about it very much during my colleague's time. I think the reason that that fails is because it misunderstands the nature of the remedies that are available in the Title VII suit. So their argument would apply in every unionized workforce. Every unionized workforce has collective bargaining agreements that have seniority, that have benefits that attach to seniority. And there's a reason they haven't cited a single case in the history of Title VII that has said that you can get a PI because of that. And the reason why is that this court's decisions and the Supreme Court's decisions recognize that if they prove their case on the merits, they can have their seniority restored. Everyone agrees that's true going forward. So now all they have left is say, well, what about the jobs in the past? There were jobs in the past that we weren't able to bid for. And there are two points about that that are very important. The first is sometimes the court can actually bump the incumbent. Mosley itself demonstrates that. In Mosley, the court upheld bumping the incumbent. Now, it said that that was permissible on the particular facts of that case, and there will be factual disputes about whether the types of things that they want to bid for can or cannot fall within that. But bumping is an available remedy. Even when it's not an available remedy, this court's case law reveals what is the proper remedy then. You can get front pay. You can get preferential treatment for future bids. What you cannot get is a preliminary injunction. And the last point, and I think this is just independently dispositive again, even if you disagree with every word I just said on the law, they lose on the facts. Because as Judge Pittman found, and he certainly didn't abuse his discretion on this, they haven't actually introduced any evidence of a concrete, imminent bidding opportunity that they won't get to bid on, that they can't get restored on the back end, and they can't get front pay for. In fact, the only example they have cited in their briefs, the only example, is in a reply brief, an affidavit they submitted with a reply brief to their motion to reconsider. And Judge Pittman said that that was improper and refused to consider it. That's their best evidence. There's just no... I'm going to switch gears to about the kind of per se First Amendment injunction in other contexts, the government context, which we were very familiar with. We have that in the statutory cases as well, in RLUIPA and RFRA. We give injunctive relief not because the statutes provide, but because we analogize to the... We have in the circuit in cases like opulent life, for example. 
So maybe there's some precedent for making a, can you tell me why there's not a rule? I'll tell you a couple of things. I'm not familiar with the case you are on or cited that they have, I don't believe cited it in their briefs, but I'll tell you a couple of things that I think will answer it at a general level. So the first is, RFRA, it is, and RLUIPA are statutory, they're not constitutional, so they're not entitled to any sort of per se presumption of irreparable harm the way constitutional rights have. There's no case that I'm aware of that has said that you just, as a per se matter, get an injunction because they're invoking a statutory violation. What I think those cases are talking about, so if you take a case like the Kikimura case that they cited from the Tenth Circuit, yeah, that, you could say there's irreparable injury. The reason why is because there the government is prohibiting you from complying with your religious beliefs. If the government actually stops you from complying with your religion, so if, for the analogy here would be, if United literally grabbed these people and tried to jab them with a needle, yeah, that would be irreparable injury, but that's not what's happening here. They have a choice. And I'm not aware of any case that has said that the choice is irreparable injury. The closest they've come is the Second Circuit case they cite in Zali. That's a case where there was a choice, and the court did say there was irreparable injury. So if they were trying to actually prohibit you or trying to, could you get an injunction in the, like in the Doe Brothers case where they, where the, the co-workers assaulting you, allegedly, can, could you get an injunction from the co-worker assaulting you preliminarily? Look, again, our point is about the loss of pay is not irreparable. Yes, if someone is physically assaulting you, actually physically assaulting you, not just... That's a distinction that they're not trying to jab you by holding you down. Exactly. And so Jolly is the only case they have where there's a choice. And in Jolly, I think the key difference is the choice was between complying with your religion or being locked in a cell for three years indefinitely. Yes, of course being locked in a cell indefinitely for three years is irreparable injury. That would be true whether his claim was a religion claim or any other claim. It had nothing to do with it being religious. It had to do with the fact that it's obviously irreparable injury to be indefinitely detained. What about the medical insurance claim? Thank you, Your Honor. I want to turn to that. So this court in Morgan v. Fletcher, that was one of the two arguments she made. Her second, her first argument, she was going to lose her house. And her second argument was she was going to lose her medical benefits. Those are the sorts of common, ordinary things that attach in every Title VII suit. That just is not enough for irreparable injury. If I could, I know I've hit my time. With the ongoing cancer, even with the more fleshed out claim of that. Yes, Your Honor. I just, those are the sort of run-of-the-mill things that happen in employment cases all the time. It's a sad fact of reality that most employees in this country, especially Title VII plaintiffs, don't have millions of dollars in the bank to weather during litigation. But that's not enough to get them a preliminary injunction. It just never has been. That's why they haven't cited a single case, a single case that's ever granted an injunction on that ground. I know I've hit my time, but if Your Honor would indulge me, I'd like a couple quick points on exhaustion. Well, no, I think your time is up, but I don't know whether Judge Elrod or Judge Oldham had another question. I mean, I do want to ask you about, and it has to do with exhaustion too, the Drew case touches on exhaustion and also the right to get an injunction. Under Drew, I know you said you think it's wrong and should be overruled, but assuming that it's still good law on its own terms, how do you get out from under Drew? Exactly the way Your Honor actually suggested in your question to him, but it's factually distinguishable too. In Drew, on the facts that were presented, the EEOC had already filed suit and it had already granted Ms. Drew her right to sue and notice. But this court said that it was fine for her to get an injunction to preserve the status quo awaiting action by the EEOC, which as a matter of practicality or policy makes quite a bit of sense, and that's exactly what the court said. So I agree with Your Honor that the court's reasoning is broader than the facts that were presented, and if the court's reasoning is legally defensible, I have a lot harder of a time, but the court's legal reasoning is clearly foreclosed by current Supreme Court precedent. There is just no question. Well, it seems to me you have a problem with that. I mean, you can certainly address it, but as you know, the Supreme Court has told us that we don't anticipate or shouldn't anticipate what the Supreme Court 
would do in a particular situation. And while there are certainly Supreme Court pronouncements that touch on this general subject, there's not a Supreme Court case that specifically addresses point by point what's encompassed by the Drew case. So, Your Honor, I don't think that that's the right way of thinking about it. And I would urge Your Honor to look at this court's decision in Stokes, which we cite in our brief. This court has recognized that a single panel can depart from prior panel precedent when the Supreme Court's pronouncements make clear that the prior precedent is no good. Stokes was making the exact argument we're making. It said that look at Sandoval, look at the court's cases like Sandoval. It's totally clear that some prior precedent of this court is no longer good law. And Judge Higginson's opinion for the court agreed and said that the prior panel precedent has been abrogated by Sandoval. It's the exact argument we're making here involving the same exact case we're making here. Because I think the key point that you should focus on is they have never even tried to explain how their positions can be reconciled with the text of the statute. The statute says you cannot bring a civil action until you have a right to sue notice. They have brought a civil action. They don't have a right to sue. It is the easiest statutory interpretation case I could imagine. And they have no textual argument for why they can do it. Their only point is that 50 years ago when this court took a much freer view of implying causes of action following the Supreme Court's lead, the court ignored the statute and said equity. But the Supreme Court has said stop doing that. All right. Your time has expired. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Chair, you save time for rebuttal. If I could, let me respond to Judge Elrod's question about the record. Then I'd like to briefly address five matters. Judge Elrod, you asked about the record on Ms. Hamilton and her husband with cancer. And that information can be found at pages 36, 19 to 20 in the record. Judge Elrod also asked, I think, a perceptive question of Mr. Mupon, which is what case law is there that prevents us from making a finding here that on these facts, irreparable injury has been established? And there was no answer at all to that question. And on the other side of the scale, there is the BSP decision, which in a very, I mean, everybody has to admit that at a minimum, that's a very analogous situation. And it clearly suggests that irreparable injury can and should be found on these facts. And I think the argument is powerful that BSP can appropriately be extended to the context of a violation of statutory rights. First of all, this court's decision in the Riley case in 1972 emphasized that Title VII's accommodation provision was, quote, intended to protect the same rights in private employment as the Constitution protects in public employment. And that point was made in a somewhat different form by Justice Scalia in the Abercrombie case as well. Second, as Judge Elrod alluded to, the Supreme Court's Hobby Lobby decision and a whole range of other decisions involving statutes protecting religious liberty make clear that irreparable injury can arise from violations of those statutes. And it's appropriate to treat violations of those statutes to the extent they impose irreparable harm. It's entirely proper to recognize that. And in fact, the Second Circuit in Jolly and the Tenth Circuit in Kitamura have recognized that violations of statutory religious freedom rights can give rise to irreparable injury. And third, alluding to the Supreme Court's decision in Sampson, Judge Ho, in his opinion, observed that if a case like this involving, as we've discussed, an ongoing effort to coerce employees into violating their religious beliefs does not present the extraordinary case that the Supreme Court had in mind in Sampson, he said, I don't know what case would. Second, United points repeatedly to the potential for a slippery slope if the court recognizes irreparable injury here won't it apply to all Title VII cases. Well, there are lots of good reasons why that would not happen. First of all, the vaccine mandates are a new phenomenon 
and violating people's religious rights through a vaccine mandate are, are a new phenomenon that, that hopefully will, will have passed before long. Um, and, and so that's, that's one way in which this case is different from the, the vast mine run of Title VII cases. Another way in which quite, it's quite different is that in most cases, the employer just fires the employee rather than, to take your example, Judge Oldham, sort of in, engages in a persistent effort to get them to change their conduct in some way that violates what they view as their, as their fundamental belief. Um, and as we mentioned earlier, in most cases, the employer also has a pretty good defense of undue hardship, uh, which obviously undermines the plaintiff's likelihood of success on the merits. So we, we cannot imagine that simply taking BSP and applying it in the Title VII context would, would create a vast, uh, you know, a vast new jurisprudence of uh, irreparable injury in Title VII cases. A third, um, and this goes to the, how, how you understand Title VII, uh, Mr. Mupon said that, uh, I think he said that Title VII, uh, that the Title VII religious accommodation provision is not a discrimination protection. Well, in fact, if you look at the way the religious accommodation provision in Title VII is written, religious discrimination is defined in the statute to include a failure to reasonably accommodate uh, the employee's religious beliefs. And so the statute itself puts a failure of accommodation on the same level with race and sex discrimination and all the other things that, uh, that Title VII protects against. Um, fourth, Mr. Mupan talked about the, you know, the seeming incongruity between uh, you know, firing an employee versus uh, versus coercing them over a period of time, and 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 are we really going to have a legal regime that encourages employers to fire their fire their employees rather than coerce them over a period of time? Well, in, in fact, um, there's a there, there's a good reason why United. There's several good reasons why United doesn't want to do that here. First of all, it would be apparent to anybody. You have 15 more seconds. Okay. Uh, it would, their, their Title VII violation would be crystal clear if they did that. And they want to keep, the, keep these employees ready so that they can recall them um, when, they, you know, when the pandemic recedes and they have a greater demand. So it's in their interest to... What is the status of this case in the district court? When is the trial? Uh, the trial hasn't been scheduled, and, and, and there, won't be a, there won't be a trial until after the EEOC rules. And have we heard anything? Do we know? Does the record reflect anything from the EEOC? Are they, are they doing an investigation? Is there, are they asking for information? What's the status of this case? It's, otherwise, that's that's not in the record, but I can oh. but, but I can tell you, well, I, I think it is probably a matter. Don't of tell me that's not in the record. Public record, but we're moving ahead with it. All right. Thank you, Mr. Thank you, Your case is under submission, and the court is in recess until nine o'clock tomorrow.